Good morning. Guess what I got this week? A new book came this week. Yay. So, well, I'm the author, so they, as soon as they came off the press, they sent me the author's copies. And, uh, the, but I, uh, the publisher called me on Tuesday and said that it is now officially on sale and that they received a large order from Amazon. So for those of you who uh, ordered from Amazon, they've shipped to Amazon, so Amazon should be getting theirs to then send them out to people. So hopefully they'll be coming in this next week or so. And uh, be sure once you get it and have a chance to read it, you go back to Amazon and then give us a good rating on there because those things make a difference. If you've ever purchased books, you read what people say about those things. So anyway, we're excited that uh, this is now going to be available. All right, let's go and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this beautiful day today, this opportunity to come and study. We invite you into our hearts. We ask for a filling of your love and truth into our minds that we can reflect you. We know there are members in the class and uh, family and friends who are struggling with health problems, and, and we pray that your healing hand will go and be upon them in accordance with your will. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number five in the quarterly, Major Lessons for Minor Prophets, and the title today is Seek the Lord and Live, Amos. And somebody read for us the memory text, which is Amos 5.14. The memory text, Amos 5.14. They're, they're uh, quoting out of the um, New American Standard Bible. See God and not evil that you may live, and thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. So you think about this text. Look at the text. What is the relationship between seeking good and not evil and living? They're making a connection, aren't they? What are the options that this could mean? I thought through, okay, what are the possible meanings here? There's multiple possible meanings. Is it speaking of temporal or eternal life or both? Is it speaking of natural consequences? Live healthy and live longer. Is it seeking, is it speaking of imposed penalties? Do right or else the government will execute you. There's a young fellow in Boston who's going to probably be facing that. You've been watching the news the last few days. Do right, or else the government... Or is it speaking of the law of love and the protocols in which life is built? I mean, as you, as you see this, this has multiple ways you could hear it and read it, isn't it? Isn't it true? So what does seeking good and subsequent life have to do with the next phrase in here, which is God being with them? Are they connected? Is there a connection there as well? Seek good, not evil, that you may live, and your God will be with you. What's the connection there? God saying, hey, if you don't do right, I'm, I'm leaving you. I'm not hanging out. You heard the story growing up? If you go to the movie theater, your guardian angels don't go with you. How many heard that? Come on. Am I the only one? No, I see a lot of hands in here, okay? You've got this idea that, the, that God's protective presence doesn't go with you if you choose evil. You had heard this? Any, any evidence, any, anybody pull a quick story out of the Bible that would say, well, wait a minute, that may not be true. How about Esther, the book of Esther? Was, was God with Mordecai and with Esther? But where were they? Where were they, literally? Where were they? Uh, after the uh, before the release to go back to Jerusalem or after the release when they were supposed to leave? Oh, wait a minute. So, so the people were released and they were supposed to go back to Jerusalem, reoccupy the land, and rebuild the temple. That's what they're supposed to do. But these people chose to stay where God didn't want them to be 
they went and they were supposed to go back to their land, but they didn't. So they're where they're not supposed to be, and yet, and so God abandoned them, right? No, He was still with them, helping them. Right. He won't leave us, but we can leave him. That's right. That's right. I think that's a good point. So, but when we choose to go to these places, are we not leaving him? Does it? it does it? It depends, doesn't it? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, we can't just. <coughs> if you personally know that you've chosen to go to this place, knowing that it's wrong to go there, you've made that choice. I guess it would depend on the place, wouldn't it? So, so is the IMAX theater as evil as a regular theater? No. No. See, look at isn't that interesting? We go to the IMAX and watch the uh, the ocean and all this kind of stuff. It's it's not as evil as we go and watch something else, right? Is it the theater? Is it the place? Or is it the content? Oh, isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. Jonah fled from God. And still he was with them in the belly of the whale. Isn't that true? I love that one, didn't he? True? Yeah, but why did he flee from God? Is it because he no longer loved God? Or that he was for fear of the future, what the future would hold, not knowing what was going to Why did he flee from God? Because he didn't want what God wanted. God wanted to redeem Nineveh. Jonah wanted Nineveh to burn. Jonah had a loving heart towards the Ninevites. Not... His heart was against him. He hated him. He wanted him to burn. He was mad at God when God was gracious in the end. I knew you would do this. I knew it. And I didn't want them to get this word from you because I wanted him to burn. He was worried more about his own reputation than God. Do you think Jonah was the only person on earth that God could have called? Do you think God knows Jonah's heart? Knows the future. Knows what Jonah's going to do. Why did he call him then? Because he knew what Jonah was going to do. And God works things for his good. I call you Jonah. Boom. Jonah goes where? Out in the sea. Gets thrown in the sea. Great fish comes. Boom. Who do, what's the god of the Ninevites? Dagon, the fish god. So then the, uh, the great fish comes up, belches up Jonah on the, on the uh, sea. I don't know if there's somebody there watching or not, but perhaps somebody saw him. Certainly he's in the belly of the whale several days. He comes out bleached white from the acid of the fish. <laughs> and they go, wow, they're going to listen more to the prophet who just gets belched up by their God? Isn't it amazing how God works? Yeah. So God, God has a plan for us. We have to really, we have to really persistently persistently, persistently, persistently over time resist and deny and evade before we destroy within us the faculties that respond to truth. That's when God lets go. When there's no... But we can resist and resist and say no and say no, but as long as we aren't beyond the point of redemption, which is we haven't destroyed the faculties respond to love and truth. He keeps after us. He keeps after us. He doesn't let us go. He only lets us go when there's nothing more he can do. Does that make sense? Yes, but so going down those things, though, doesn't separate us from him unless it destroys our faculties. We can't respond anymore, but it injures us. It damages us and starts that path of internal damage and destruction. Yes? One of the best texts in the Bible about the character of God is the last text in, in Jonah because he refers to the hundreds of thousands of people in Nineveh and the animals. Yes, and the animals. I love that. Yes, the animals. The animals that would have been destroyed too. That's great. In the bottom paragraph in the Sabbath lesson, it says, This week, as we continue to study the book of Amos, we will see even more 
of the ways in which the Lord pled with his people to put away their sins and return unto him, the only true source of life. In the end, all, we all have only one of two choices, life or death. And uh, as we consider that, do you agree that, in fact, God is the only true source of life? I don't think there's any disputing that. I agree with that. Then what is the connection with that thought in mind between good, choosing the good, avoiding the evil, life, being with God? You're starting to see a connection here through all that. If, with that in mind then, what is the reason for death? Not choosing life. Not choosing life. Any other way to say that? If death results from being separated from God, from being evil, what's another way to say being evil? From being deviant from God and his design. Is that the same thing as being evil? Being deviant from God and his design. Mm-hmm. From failing to be reconciled to him. What happens? Is, is being in that state of evil, being in that state of deviant from God's design, being uh, hostile and, and an enemy of God in your heart and mind, uh, failing to be reconciled to him, is that what the, what resu- does, does that result in what the Bible and Jesus call sleep in the grave? Or does it result in something else? What's it result in? Sleep in the grave? Eternal death. Oh, okay. Something called, uh, uh, the, the, it's not the first death where we're waiting resurrection. Because we just said that death is that God is the true source of life. Death happens when we're separated from him. Right? So, when, so this waiting in the grave, this first death experience that we call death, is that really death that is the result of sin? No. So when Jesus and I, for, there are, uh, there, we're going to explore this a little bit because I've been getting a lot of emails from around the circle where people are really struggling with this idea, and, and this causes a great confusion in God's interventions in the past, and people go to great lengths to try and explain away how you know either they take the first death, Sodom and Gomorrah, and places like this as proof that God will ex- execute in the end. Or they take the other side of that extreme that God never does anything except be passive and he just stands back passively and let things happen. One of two extremes. Because I think they confuse this point. When Jesus surrendered his spirit into the Father's care, was Jesus' spirit separated from the Father or safe and secure with the Father? What about the wicked in the end? Will they have their spirit safe and secure with the Father at the end of the thousand years of the eternal death that's the wages of sin? No. No. Hmm. Remember this quote from one of the founders of our church? It uh, is out of Six Bible Commentary, page 1093. See if you agree with it. It's quite, quite insightful. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, that's what the spirit is, your character, is returned to God, there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. Does anybody disagree with that? No. So then is this first death thing that we call sleep, where your spirit, your characters return to God, they're safe to be preserved for the resurrection, or are you separate from God? But I thought death was when we're separate from God. Uh, second death, she says. Well, what does it mean when they say that Christ experienced the second death? Give me one text that says that. Show me one place in any inspired writer, any inspired writer. Then where does that 
It comes from accepting imposed Roman law constructs. You see, if you have an imposed Roman law construct, okay, you've broken the law, and as an imposer of law, there has to be a proper penalty imposed. The proper penalty is eternal second death. That's what we say. Well, in order to not have that uh, applied to you and you being executed, somebody has to pay the penalty, right? Jesus came to pay the penalty in this view. Thus, the penalty we all know is eternal death. So Jesus had to die that death. So it comes as an artifact of misunderstanding God's law. What happens if we understand God's law is the design upon which life is built? The protocol upon which life exists. His nature is character of love. And we are deviant from it. We're going to get into more of this as the lesson unfolds. But we're deviant from it. We're in a state of, of, of a terminal condition, so to speak. Does Christ have to pay a penalty? Or does Christ have to cure that condition? So, at, what does the Bible say about what Christ achieved? That he, does the Bible say anywhere, find me the text so you can find it, he died the second death? Or does it say he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light? Exactly. And that's 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He destroyed death. Is destroying death the same thing as being destroyed by death in the second death? No, the wicked are destroyed by death. Christ destroyed death. These aren't the same, are they? And you can go through any definition. If you want to look at uh, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but cannot destroy the soul. Body, soul, Greek word for soul, psyche, mind, individuality, character. This is who, who your individual, your personhood is. When Jesus rose again, did he rose a, rise a different person or was it this same Jesus? Remember that remember the, the angel said, this same Jesus. His character was not destroyed at the cross, was it? No, in fact, his character is what heals and restores us. Desire of Ages, page 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. The law law requires righteousness, a righteous character. This man has not to give, but Christ came in the form of man and developed a perfect character. This he offers as a free gift to to all who will accept it. His character was not destroyed at the cross. He perfected human character at the cross. Christ became what God intended man and Adam to be. Yes or no? Yes. That's exactly right. So there's this idea. Meditate more on that idea of second death. We're going to go through a little more here. So does it sound like Christ and or anybody who died the first death has had their individuality, their character, their spirit separate from God? Not yet. Now, let's be clear. There would be no death of any kind, first or second, if there was no sin. No death of any kind if there's no sin. However, it seems to me, as I study into this, that the first death is not the wages of sin, but an artificial state permitted by God, by God's grace, to allow for the salvation and redemption and the playing out of the plan of salvation. In other words, if God did not intervene in Eden, as soon as man sinned, Christ was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, God intervened instantly. If God didn't, if he would have just let things go their natural way, would earth still be here today the way it is? No. No. Sin would have destroyed this planet already. Sunday's lesson, second paragraph. It says, The purpose of the funeral song, Amos 5, 1 through 15, was to shock the people into facing reality. If they persisted in in their sins, they surely would die. If, on the other hand, they rejected evil and returned to God, they would live. 
the Lord's character such that he expected conformity to the divine will. As you read that, what kind of things are coming to your mind? I hope you're asking questions. Return to the Lord and they would live. That's what the message is. Return to the Lord and live. For how long would they live if they returned to the Lord? Of those who actually returned to the Lord, uh, you know, of those people in Israel at that time, weren't there a faithful remnant? Weren't there some that were faithful and true to the Lord during this time? Amos is an example. How many of them are alive today? Interesting. Wait, I thought if they returned and stayed faithful, they'd live. What does this mean? Did those who, re, who rejected the Lord and those who remained faithful not all go into the grave? So what does it mean they return to the Lord and live if in fact they all died? Why is your life today, the walk that you have today, is so much richer? So while you're here living and breathing on earth, you actually live versus exist. And the second thing is then, then that relationship you've developed persists into eternity. So when Christ comes again, you can uh, take up your life again that he gives you and have eternity. Do you notice what she just did? Y'all notice? She didn't say it this way, but she's defining living as something other than being alive. Living, to live, is not just having existence. She's, She's taking and defining living, or to live, to be something more than having your heartbeat and having breath go in and out and having the physiological functions of your body work. That's what she's doing. Do, do you think she's, she's going down the wrong trail or she's, she's going down a trail of insight here? Insight. Well, maybe we should pursue this further. So this, this idea of Pursuing the Lord in living and, and, and turning away from evil so you won't die. Could it be talking about not simply the full, fuller life here? I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, as Christ said. But talking about life in the lens of the great controversy and an eternal reality. Jesus said this in John 11. 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. He who, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you? How, what do you understand it means? Did the apostles believe in Jesus Christ? Did they die? Wait a minute, hold on. Jesus has just said, if you, if you believe in me, you will never die. This is the part I want you to really get your mind around. Our human English language, the hum, our language of humanity has, has led us, I think, to, to merge two different states and fail to see the distinction between the two. This first death, sometime called sleep, an eternal non-existence with mind, individuality, character, soul, psyche, every part of you gone for all eternity, death. We've merged those two into one word called death, and we fail to separate the two states as being distinct and separate. 
Yes. Didn't Jesus himself define eternal life in his last prayer before the cross when he said, this is eternal life to know the one true God of Jesus Christ? Okay, so, so John 17, 3, this is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and now ascent. Back to our, our, our memory verse then. Turn away from evil, seek good, that you might have life, and the Lord will be with you. How is that different than what Jesus said? Or is that the same thing Jesus said? God is the only true source of life. Can we have life separate from him? So knowing him, is that cognitive or is that experiential? Okay, so somehow there's this idea of being connected with God. Did the apostles, at some point before they ceased on earth, come to know God? Did they have life? Did they die? No. No, It depends on how we find death, isn't it? Did did they go to sleep in the grave? Yes. Did they die the result of sin? No. No. This is critical to, to let your minds really start disentangling this because it, so much of our theology is caught up into this idea and God's role in it. Yes? When we read John 11, 25 and 26, I always saw two separate things. He said, I'm resurrection for one type of people. I'm life for another type of people. And then he says, who believes in me, even if he dies, he will live. And then he said, so he's going to be a resurrection for that type of people. And then he says, if anyone who lives and also believes in me will never die. So what does that word never mean? Does that mean that, it, the, like for instance, Enoch, where would you put Enoch in this category? I mean, he was translated, he never died. I mean, we know that he never died. So where does Enoch fit in uh, John eleven twenty five twenty six? And how about Daniel? Did Daniel die? I mean, I'm, I'm actually talking about, I mean, not even physically dying. We know that Enoch walked with God, and then he was taken. I, I hear you. I understand. We know Enoch was translated. I get that. Did, and I'm, I'm, I'm comparing. Did Daniel die? Moses. How about, did Moses die? Moses died, but then he was resurrected. No, Moses didn't die. This is the point I want you to understand. Moses did not die. Moses slept in the grave, but he did not die. Now, Enoch never slept in the grave. It depends on how you define death. I, my definition of death, so, so, so I don't confuse anybody, is the death that is the wages of sin. The wages of sin is death. And that death is an eternal non-existence from, from which your, your body, your mind, your character, your individuality, your psyche, your soul, every element that makes you you is gone for all eternity, destroyed. And there is no resurrection from that. That's death from sin. This other thing in which you sleep in the grave until resurrection, this is not death. This is not, the reason, this is not the wages of sin. It's a consequence because of sin. If there was no sin, this wouldn't happen. But this is a, this is a, this is a artificial state that sin does not naturally bring, in my view. Sin does not naturally bring a state where you rest secure in God's care waiting for a resurrection. That's not what sin brings. Sin brings an eternal separation from God and a destruction. And so this artificial state where we rest secure as we read in God's care, waiting for the resurrection, that state happens because God is interposed into the natural result of sin, allowing for the whole plan of salvation to be worked out on the landscape of our history. Am I, am I confusing people or, or are you with me? And it makes a huge difference, I think, for us to how we see God and then his role and actions through human history. Let's go through some more texts. I think this might help you. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. 
If you, as for you, you were dead in your tres- transgressions or trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You were dead in trespasses and sins. What's it mean? Think through that text. What's it mean? I can tell you the historical view. There's, there's a couple of views. One view is you were condemned by the supreme dictator of the universe to be executed for under a death sentence because you were guilty of sin. You, you, you were under a sentence of death. That's what some people view this as. But there's another way. Your condition was terminal. You were born in a terminal state. And if it's not healed, you're going to die from that condition. Dean? I think what you said is brought out in the fact that the angels, the fallen angels, have not died. They're continuing to live in their rebellion. Um, so, I mean, humans have been put to sleep as a, like you said, as a, as a emergency measure. Uh, whereas angels that have fallen haven't, and they're still alive, and we know that they'll be eternally not exist as well at the end. Y'all think 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 through. Would you would would there be more human happiness and joy on earth, or more human suffering and misery if there wasn't a death of sleep? Think think through the history. If everybody who had been born so far were still alive. But but they're not they're not healthy. I mean, your can your bone cancer eats away at you, but you don't die. You just continue to exist in that state. You follow what I'm saying here? You, you think there's more happiness and joy on earth in this state? The war, the evil that we've seen through history. You know, the, if you read what happened after the flood, God permitted the life to be shortened out of mercy because when they lived so long, what does Genesis six describe? Violence and violence and cruelty all the time. It was ugly. There was not joy. There was not happy. There was misery and suffering. Yes. Um, as in the Healing Mind uh, DVD and talking about the restoring the relationship of love and trust, if we look at Christ's example here as well as the life we're given here to be able to allow that time to rediscover God's character that was lived in body form in Jesus Christ of restoring that relationship of love and trust then when that relationship is restored and put back together, for some there's an interruption of a nap before that relationship continues right? and that nap of sleep. But the relationship itself is healed versus others in which there's the choice not to reestablish that relationship. And for them, they turn away and that's the eternal death um, and the, the drop of that. I agree. I agree. Let's get some more Bible text. Romans 8, 9, and 10. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. What do you hear? Do you hear this as an imposed sentence? Or do you hear this as, you've got a condition that is still deteriorating your physiology, but your mind and character have been renewed in Christ? I hear, that, I hear it as, we were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms 51. We're born in a condition that is terminal, yet our character is being renewed. We have a new heart and right spirit that we are alive with Christ now, even though our body continues to age and deteriorate. How about this? 
This is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. What does it mean? How do you hear it? My paraphrase of those two verses? When your condition was terminal and selfishness reigned unchecked in your mind and your heart was tied to the destructive cravings and practices of the world, God intervened and brought you the life-giving remedy, Jesus Christ. He reclaimed you from your terminal condition, nullifying the pathology report, which certified you as dead in sin. He made it clear the written code with its regulations was only a diagnostic instrument designed to expose our terminal state and teach us the need for a true cure. He nailed it to the cross. What do you think? See, it depends on which model you look through. If you're looking through an imposed law model... This text looks one way. If you're looking through God-built life to operate in, a, in a certain protocols in harmony with his nature and character, the law of love, we're deviant from it. We're born in this condition. Yes? Can you maybe just make a comment on like First Corinthians 17 says, the one who joins the Father becomes one spirit with him. And then Colossians 3, 3, it says, for you have died. Mm-hmm. Carnal man has died, Romans 6, 6. And your life, obviously your new life now, as a spirit, because you joined the Father, is hidden with Christ in God. Can so, you just elaborate on that? So what does the word spirit mean? We had some insight earlier in our lesson today. When you use the word spirit, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the breath that you breathe and it's just energy force? Is that what we're talking about? What are we talking about when we say spirit? Are we talking about the body? Character. So when we say spirit, our character is united with Christ, harmonized with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We, have, we are partakers of the divine nature. The law is written on the heart and mind, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. We have circumcision to the heart by the Holy Spirit. The heart of stone is removed. The heart of flesh is put in. All of these are the same thing as what you've been reading, which is we have died to the way of selfishness and me first, which is out of harmony with God's design in which we were born, we now have received through the Holy Spirit a new motive, a new, new, a new way of doing business, which is in harmony with God's character. So our character is now united with God's character. We're on the same page with him. And this is where life is found. And I'll have some more text to show that in a second. Dean. Gene online says, uh, points us to Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2, which reads, the righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be separated from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. Well, isn't that kind of what we were saying? Thank you so much. Isaiah 57? One and two. Did you notice what it said? They are taken away to be separated from evil, evil that they rest in peace. Rest in peace. I've heard that somewhere before. First uh, Timothy five six. Listen to this. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. I'm sure that applies to people other than widows. But the person who lives 
for pleasure is dead even while he lives. Dead? Well, I, I look at this as a person who's had a, a toxic radiation exposure. You know that the, like uh, like a major radiation exposure from a from a nuclear power plant melt on Chernobyl or one of these things, and there's nothing you're going to die in about ten days, two weeks. There's nothing, but you've got ten days or two weeks. You're 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 dead, but yet you're not quite. This is what it's talking about. Your condition is terminal, but yet you still have. Let's let's read some insights from some various uh, books that were written uh, some time ago. This is the first one, Thought Amount of Blessings, page 61. And maybe it, it will help us with this. God is the fountain of life. And we can have life only as we are in communion with him. Our spirit is brought in harmony with the spirit. Separated from God, existence may be ours for a little time, but we do not possess life. Only through the surrender of our will to God is it possible for him to impart life. Us. Now, is this getting some shedding some light on what we're talking about? Is existence, is what you're talking about, existence and life the same thing? Hmm. This is out of Thoughts Mountain Blessings, page 62. If you cling to self, refusing to yield your will to God, you are choosing death. To sin wherever found, God is a consuming fire. If you choose sin and refuse to separate from it, the presence of God which consumes sin must consume you. Is it an infliction? Is God using power to inflict this upon somebody? It's an inevitable, natural result of the condition with which you're in. This is Darkness Before Dawn, page 14. Adam could not transmit to his posterity that which he did not possess. And there could have been no hope for the fallen race had, had not God, by the sacrifices of son, brought immortality within their reach. While death passed upon all men for all of sin, Christ hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And only through Christ can immortality be obtained. See, when the Bible talks about life, this is life eternal. See, it's not, it's life eternal. It's not about immortality. Life is a never-ending existence with God and unity and harmony with him because we're in harmony with how he built life to operate. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving or renewing the soul. Yes. So does this sound, as I read these two um, quotations, does it sound like an imposed law construct in which the death comes out from an authority who must execute for justice to be had and, there, and we get life because someone paid our penalty? Or does it sound like a natural condition that's being healed? What, what's it sound like? Natural yes. All right, here's another one. Review and Herald, March 12, 1901. The Savior saw that man has vast powers and, and capabilities for good which can be used in the upbuilding of God's kingdom. He came to restore to life those dead in sin. Restore to life. Now, follow this. His voice is to be heard saying, Awake thou sleepest and arise from the dead. As the Father hath life in him, he has given to his Son to have life in himself. To arouse those spiritually dead, to create new tastes, new motives, requires as great an outlay of power as to raise one from physical death. It is indeed giving life to the dead to convert the sinner from the error of his ways. Now that is profound. Have you considered that? 
the renewal, the rebirth, the regeneration, the recreation of your heart, to have new motives. When it was mentioned earlier, when our spirit is brought in harmony with the spirit of the Father, this is giving life. And it takes an equal outlay of divine power to transform your heart as it does to raise the physical body. Isn't that profound, guys? Meditate on that. It's awesome. Does that sound like a legal pardon going on or a recreation, regeneration, healing happening? It's a complete different perspective. Yes? I hear that pretty well driving the whole idea of a declaration as though you were in a courtroom like this, that you have life simply because you confess the name of Jesus and you do nothing about healing yourself. I, I see that, that whole idea being driven totally in the ground. It's, I mean, without the healing process, what do you have? Exactly right. That's exactly right. Thank you. Um, I'm going to skip a couple of quotes. Let me go into this one. Eight Testimonies 135. Selfishness brings spiritual death. What brings spiritual death? Selfishness. And what does spiritual death result in if not healed? Eternal death. That's right. So, and selfishness is opposed to or against love, love, which is God's character. It's out of harmony with his design. Here's another one. Prophets and Kings 2.33. The polluted streams represent the soul that is separate from God. Soul that is separate. Remember, we talked about this unity versus separation earlier. Sin not only shuts away, uh, sin not only shuts away from God, but destroys in the human soul both the desire and capacity for knowing him. Both the desire... Don't, don't, don't care to know him, and the ability or capacity to know him. That's what sin does to our minds. Through sin, the whole human organism is deranged. The mind is perverted. The imagination corrupted. The faculties of the soul are degraded. This is why what we read earlier, the conversion experience is a resurrection of your abilities, your faculties. It's a renewal. It's a regeneration. It is a life-giving process. And then one more. Great Controversy, page 36. And uh, this is just to try to, to, to drive the nail into the coffin of that imposed view of idea where death comes from. Great Controversy, page 36. God does not stand towards the sinner as an executioner of the sentence against transgression. But he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to reap that which what they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is a seed sown which yields an unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God persistently resisted is at last withdrawn from the sinner, and then there is left no power to control the evil passions of the soul and no protection from the malice and enmity of Satan. So when people present God as the executioner of imposed punishment on the sinner, they're misrepresenting God and promoting Satan's view of God. I can't say it any plainer than that. Yes? So when the flood, for instance, happened, uh, so anti-delusion people, they were not, it wasn't God executing his justice. It was, was that just the law of, Sowing and reaping? I'm sorry, I'm asking a big No, no, it's a great question. We have to go back to what we started. What are we trying to disentangle in this room today? There's two ideas that have been merged. We're trying to disentangle them. What are they? Death and sleep, right? Death is a result of? Sin. 
Sleep wouldn't happen if there was no sin, but that's not the natural consequence. That's an intermediate state from which people will be raised, and many are secure with Christ in heaven, waiting for the resurrection, right? Okay, the flood. What happened at the flood? Did they die the eternal death? No. Or are they sleeping death? Okay, so this isn't punishment for sin. Whatever you want to call it, it's not punishment for sin. But at the same time, it came down to individual choice. Individual choice. God, through every relationship, was trying to reach out to those individuals, each one, presenting to them the option of life, presenting to the option of healed relationships, presenting the option of growing in love and life here on this earth. The individual then had the choice and chose to stand in ridicule and say, no, or get on the ark. Yeah, yeah. And so well said. It was not God's imposed punishment that they did not have a choice in. It was the result of that individual's choice with the with the options given. Uh, well said. Well said. Thank you so much. I agree with that completely as well. And even in that context, they chose to go into the grave and sleep rather than to continue their life for a few more hundred years. They still would have gone into the grave several hundred years later most of them, but they still would have ended up in the grave. They just went earlier by their choice. That's well said. Yes. Brittany. There's something we have to think about, though. There was babies and kids that didn't have a choice, so we have to wrestle with that as well. I don't have the answer, but not everyone literally got to choose. Yeah, but, see, that, 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 but see, that's the beauty of what we're saying here. It, 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 this is what Christ meant. Said, Don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul, psyche, individuality. So even if it wasn't there, there are many murder victims that never made the choice. Is that, is that not true? Those people in Boston, some of these people, three people in Boston are now sleeping in the grave. They didn't make that choice. This has happened for lots of reasons. But guess what? Their, only their body was destroyed then. Their psyche, their individuality, their identity is safe and secure with Christ in heaven. Okay, so all those children as well. So not everybody that was destroyed in the flood is going to be lost. We don't know that. The the true answer is we don't know which resurrection people come up in. We don't know. Have you ever heard a mission story where a missionary went out and preached Christ and a a 14-year-old girl was convicted and wanted to come to church, but her daddy was the the head pagan voodoo doctor and he locks her up and won't let her out of the house to go to church and won't let her get baptized? Maybe even has her stoned by the community? We we don't know there wasn't a child that wanted to get on the ark and daddy wasn't going to be embarrassed. He's the mayor of the town. You're not getting on that ark embarrassed me. He locks her in a room. Do we know that? We don't know that. What we do know, what we do know is that, that everybody who went into the grave at that time is going to come up out of the grave of one or two resurrections. That's what we know. It wasn't the punishment for sin. Yes. And the people that were on the ark aren't necessarily going to be saved. Yeah, and the people, thank you, and the, and the ones that got on the ark are not necessarily saved for eternity. Right. They were saved for, 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 for going to sleep at that time. They went to sleep later. Yes, yes. Go ahead, Dean. James Online asks, if you commit suicide, are you choosing death or sleep? Sleep. There's no question. You, you can't, it, it, the only way to choose death is to destroy the faculties in your mind that respond to the Holy Spirit and harden your heart in selfishness so that you can no longer be reached by the Holy Spirit. And that can be done. And people who are that selfish usually don't suicide. They, are, they don't. They're like, I mean, unless they're cornered like Hitler. Hitler wouldn't have killed himself, except he got cornered by circumstances. 
If he could have killed everyone else to keep himself alive, he would have done it. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. All right. Let's go. Uh, let's let's go. Let's go on. Um, the lesson points out in the third paragraph that God calls people to hate evil and love good. In other, and it says this. In other words, a change in the people's attitude will lead to a change in their actions. This is well said. A change in the heart attitude. This is that converting spirit. Listen to this quote. Um, Review and Herald, February 25, 1902. A revival and a reformation. Do you know the difference between revival and reformation? Listen to this. A revival and, refor- and reformation must take place under the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Revival and reformation are two different things. Revival signifies a renewal of the spiritual life, a quickening of the powers of the mind and the heart, a resurrection from spiritual death, revive, to revive, to resurrect, a revival. Reformation signifies a reorganization, a change in ideas and theories, habits and practices. Reformation will not bring forth the good fruit of righteousness unless it is connected with revival of the Spirit. Revival and Reformation are to do their appointed work. How many have seen Reformation happen? We're going to get new practices. We're going to, we're going to do, do new, uh, you know, eat new foods. We're going, to, we're going to go to church on a new day. We're going to do all this Reformation, but there's no revival. And it becomes a legalistic, oppressive, pharisaical religion. It's revival that is key, and revival then leads to reformation. And then, so if this is this revival, this new life, this resurrection of our spirit, our character with new motives and stuff, where, how, where does that come from? How do we get that? Christ Object Lessons, page 311. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. Notice the, the and then it goes back again, to, when you use that metaphor, clothed in the robe of righteousness. Through the imposed model, what, what, is, what does that mean if you're looking through the imposed law model? It covers it up so when the father looks at you, he can't see your wickedness because you're covered. The candy-coated rotten apple theory. <laughs> Have a rotten apple, coat it with candy, it looks great on the outside, you don't know how rotten it is in the core. This is the false view that is often taught because of an imposed model. But you notice what this described, what did it describe, a covering or an internal transforming healing regeneration? Yes, that's the covering. And so when God looks at us and sees Christ, he does it because it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me, we are partakers of the divine nature. We actually have new motives. We have been resurrected to live a spiritual, loving, other-centered life. All right, Monday's lesson. We're getting to Monday now. We're moving along. <laughs> First paragraph, Monday's lesson is more than most other books of the Bible. Amos focuses on injustice, cruelty, and inhumanity. It offers the divine perspective of such on such practices. Amos preached preached that God despised empty rituals of his people, dead formalism. He, he, he despised this. So what was some of the empty rituals and dead formalism that the Jews practiced, Israel practiced back then? Sacrificing in the temple. Sacrificing in the temple. Okay, anything else? Prayer. Sabbath. Prayer. What else? Ceremonial washings? Yeah. Ceremonial washings? How about offerings, tithes and offerings? How about their festivals, their annual festivals? Now, where do they get all those things? Where do they get the idea? Where did it pop into their mind? Let's do these things. God gave them through Moses. 
Wow, they didn't imagine this on their own? They actually had this instruction from God? Was there anything actually wrong with the specific acts they were doing? No. Then what made it wrong? Their motives. Their motives. And what were the motives? Remember, dead formalism, empty rituals. Were they thinking? Were they appreciating the, the were they appreciating the, uh, the, 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 the lessons designed and built into those object lessons? Were their hearts being renewed through this experience? Okay, let's bring it home. They did it without meaning. Do we have any problems in Christianity today of dead formalism and rituals? Like this. Okay, like what? How about how we dress? Is there a ritualistic, formalistic way that we must dress in certain ways and we shouldn't dress in other ways? How about jewelry? Jewelry's thin, isn't it? How about church attendance? Can church attendance be dead formalism and ritual? How about diet? How about prayer, offerings, communion, baptism, the sinner's prayer? Can, you know, that, 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 that moment where we accept, can that all, all that be dead formalism? How many people have been baptized, but, you know, they, they didn't die to the old man? They, they didn't come up with a new life. Went through a ritual. The problem with all that is, it can be. But then again, there are people that do these things because in their heart they believe them to be true. So is there anything inherently wrong with any of those different things I just said? No. No. So where's the problem? Well, the problem is, is we as a church, as a people, tend to judge others for the reason for doing things sometimes and, and, and say that they're fanatical or they're trying to work their way to heaven or these things, whenever in their heart they may really believe what they're doing is right. Where do you experience the most judgmentalism coming from? Those who are viewing those things as not necessary, or those who believe they must be done in order to be saved in certain ways? I do, I do agree there can be some of that, that they look at people and judge them as being too rigid and too prim and too proper and too legalistic and this kind of thing. That can be done, sure. But my experience has been it's generally those people who are hyper-conservative are intolerant of somebody who may go out and eat on Sabbath or may not, may not eat the foods that you eat or, or may wear jewelry or not wear jewelry. There's this real punitive desire to, to, to crush out that type of deviation from the, the very, very hyper-conservative. That's been my experience. Has anybody else experienced it differently or is it the same? Yeah. But but it can happen the other way. I've seen it happen the other way too. Yes, and and so the problem isn't no. The problem is no, there's nothing wrong with a person who wants to dress conservatively and not wear jewelry. And there's, there's nothing. These things are not inherently good or bad. A lot of it is the motive for why they do it. Is it it's really exactly scary? right? Because how much? What is the? What is the? On oh, my website, go to the website and put type in jewelry. There's several blogs I've written about it. The problem with jewelry. Is the, is, is, what makes jewelry a problem, if it's a problem, is the desire to aggrandize self and, and, and adorn self and lift up self and promote self. This is the problem with jewelry, if it's a problem. But there are many people that will never wear jewelry, but they'll aggrandize self with their fur coats or their sequin dresses or their brooches that can be pinned, because you can pin it on, or their $10,000 watches because it tells time, or, or their, I've seen, their hyper-conservative dress as if they live in the 19th century. And, and, it's, and, and they do it in such a way that they make themselves stand out and distinct so they, they become noticed. 
Motivated by pride. Exactly. So, the, so you, you can do the behavior either way. The issue is the heart. That's the issue. Yes. Within the church, we often see this struggle as, you, as we've been discussing. Looking at comments in relationship to the videos of this most recent week of the um, Boston bombing and whatnot, the comments are vitriolic on both sides from people who have no compassion, are selfish, and whatnot, for their own viewpoint. And so it, it doesn't make a difference what viewpoint you're coming from. It can be of the devil on all sides. I, th- I think he loves to set up multiple different groups that are all in his camp to argue with each other. I gave you that example before of the of the Catholic priest and the Protestant pastor discussing the atonement and how the the Catholic priest said that uh, that uh, that uh, um, with the with the mass um, the Protestant the Protestant pastor was criticizing the Catholic because at the mass that they're saying Christ is being sacrificed again when the when in the Catholic idea that uh, the uh, um, the mass is actually his body and, and so forth. Well, the Catholic priest said, no, no, no. In the sacrifice, there's two aspects of the sacrifice. The immolation, which you actually kill the, kill the offering. And then after it's killed, there's the, the actual offering of the sacrifice. So it's dead, and now you take the dead and you offer the sacrifice. Two por- portions. The, the immolation, the killing of Christ happened once, according to the Catholic priest. But every time the priest does the mass, that sacrifice is offered again to the Father, to appease the Father's wrath and pay for our sin. So it's not killed, it's only killed once, but it's offered over and over again to the Father. And the Protestant minister said, and I can't remember the exact words he used. Oh no, I remember now with words. No, his sacrifice isn't offered to the Father over and over when we confess our sins. His merits are offered over and over to the Father to pay for our sins. Both of them. Or this is this point. If you look at it, they both have a God who's angry and wrathful, who believes that he must impose punishment, who's going to execute you, and they both have a God who must be appeased by anger and wrath, but one is appeased by the sacrifice, one is appeased by the merits, and so they're arguing over this. And, and Satan's laughing because they both have this ugly picture of God that they're promoting is true. This is, the, this is what Satan does. It's crazy. Um, I, uh, so much in the lesson. Let's jump to Friday. Jump to Friday's lesson. Um, First question on Friday's lesson. Uh, we may come back and talk about the paragraph above if we can. It says, as a class, go over the answer to Sunday's question about learning to hate evil and do good. Uh, why is it danger um, especially prevalent when cultures... It says, um, do good, as well as the danger of calling evil good and good evil. Why is this danger especially prevalent when culture and society start to uh, change their values in ways that accept certain behaviors, lifestyles, and attitudes that clearly are condemned in the Bible. Um, let's see. For example, what things that were once considered shameful and taboo are op- now openly uh, now uh, shameful and taboo now openly are expressed and practiced, even deemed good or at least not wrong. And I thought, well, what what kind of things are that used to be taboo that and even shameful, that are now um, considered good or even, or at least not wrong. How about scriptures being read and studied by the lay people in their own language? Was that not taboo for a thousand years? It was wrong. 
So we shouldn't probably do it because for a thousand years it was taboo and wrong. How about women, women's ordination? My goodness, culture is changing, isn't it? And it's wrong. I'm going to tell you something, guys. One of the ways Satan's degrade, Satan degrades us and gets us to be violent to each other is by degrading women. He first gets men to believe that women are subordinate and are worthy of, of a second class, and, and it degrades the image of God and man because the two together, united, make the image of God and man. And if you look at societies in this world where women are treated as second-class citizens, they have an, an authoritarian, oppressive, intolerant humanity. I don't know if you, you, what was it somebody said in here, was it a week or so ago, that uh, in Saudi Arabia they actually, they, they've uh, sentenced somebody to paralysis? How do they treat women in that country? You'll find that in, just look at the societies where women are second-class citizens. And there's no grace. Grace isn't there. there it's, it's abusive. And this is one of Satan's, and in the church, the church through history that has is, is treated women as second-class citizens, that becomes oppressive. Look how Christ treated women. Look how Christ treated women. And our church is in a battle over this issue too. Why? Because there's this authoritarian view of God and we have to have authority over women because they are, they are too foolish and too emotional to govern themselves and they have to have a man tell them how to live. <laughs> Isn't this how it's taught? Yeah. It's, a, it's a grand lie, yes. But do you think it rather strange that he chose a woman... To be a prophet? No, I don't. I don't think that's strange at all. I think I think that God doesn't. Is, God is not a sexist. God looks at character. God looks at character, not reproductive organs. And and and, and you guys need to you need to reflect on that. Look at the societies. Look at how women are treated in these oppressive societies. And and it, and it and it does something to the psyche. If you believe this, if you believe it's true, your psyche has just demeaned and devalued fifty percent of the people who carry the image of God in them. They're not as equal, equal. Other things that are tradition. How about people deciding where to give their tithes and offerings, as guided by the Holy Spirit, to support the gospel, rather than allowing the church to decide for them. Culture is changing. Many people are doing this now. But some would have you think this is taboo. You shouldn't think about where God would have you give your tithes and offerings. You should just give it blindly and let the church decide. Or how about this? Homosexuals are being treated with compassion rather than stoning. Well, how dare we be compassionate? This issue, by the way, is coming to a head in our universities. This issue is coming to a head, and you watch. You keep your eyes open, and you watch... The people who would have, who stoned Stephen, stoned people in our own church. Not with literal stones. You watch them persecuted. You watch them driven out of our universities because they're gracious to the homosexual as the reason. They're gracious to the homosexual and they're going to be driven out. I know, I know some things are going on right now and I can't share it publicly, but right now in our universities, this is happening. People, faculty and administrators and leaders are being attacked because they're gracious to the homosexual. If Jesus Christ were the president of the university, how would he treat them? Yeah. Well, you see, if Jesus Christ was the president of the university, um, he didn't have a, a place to put his head, 
or a home to sleep in. And we can't allow our university to go into poverty, so we must conform to the, the, the big money donors who don't want that on campus. And so we have to keep the place to put the, you know, the kids have to have a place to lay their head, and we have to have the money coming in, and so we have to conform. So, you know, Jesus certainly would, would, would lead differently, but we'd all be out on the street, so we can't follow that example. I mean, this is the, this, I'm telling you, it's all about money. And this is what, this is why. So you're right, Jesus wouldn't do it this way. But Jesus, well, Jesus was crucified, wasn't he? And which, which, of our, which of our university presidents and leaders are willing to be crucified to do the right thing? Some. Let's watch and see. Keep your eyes open. Some, you will see a Nicodemus, you'll see a Joseph of Arimathea, you will see some stand up for right, and they will be crucified. They will be stoned by, by that hyper right wing. But the hyper right wing, they won't come out of the closet. That's a pun. <laughs> but they won't. They hide in the shadows, using their money and influence behind the scenes, threatening to get the people who hold office to do their evil for them. Watch for it. It's an ugly thing we're in. We're in a spiritual war, guys. We really are. We're in a spiritual war. And, 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 and the devil knows that, that this organization, this church, has been blessed with insights and truths about God's character of love, and he, and he wants to crush it. So he brings these, these side issues in and tries to make them the real issue. Do you really think, in the end, that the church's mission is to go out and preach against homosexuality? What is our final message to take to the world? Exactly, the truth in Christ's object lessons, the final message to go to the world is the truth about God's character of love. Is that just in words or is it in deeds? So how should we treat the homosexual? With love, with grace, with mercy. And our job is to bring people to Christ in their sin and let Christ convict them and heal them. It's not our job to convict them of sin. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that while we were yet sinners that you died to heal and save us. We thank you that you did not require us to fix ourselves up before we could come to you. Teach us to be gracious. Teach us to love those who, who are having a hard time seeing your character of love and are doing what they think is right, but doing it from a spirit of, of oppression. Give us patience with them and, and give us wisdom on how to, to take this message out to the world and even to our church in, in a way that can, can, uh, can make inroads and you've promised that, that the true gospel, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. And we ask that the power of the spirit of truth and the power of the spirit of love will come and enable us to take this message forward. We pray in your holy name. Amen.